Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, and as always with me, my co-host and friend. Andreas Steno, founder and um, CEO of Steno Research. It's great to see you again, Alf. Um, I've been struggling a bit with a sore throat this week, um, so I'll allow you to speak for the most part of this podcast uh, this week, Alf. Um, but one thing that we know as of now is that the... Um, that ceiling soap opera has ended. Um, thankfully, I, I mean, I got annoyed <laughs> with all of the headline trading around uh, debt ceiling discussions, etc. And it was frankly impossible to time all of these messages from politicians. But now we know at least the path ahead when it comes to the US Treasury strategy, at least partially, right? Because they have options uh, on how to progress from here uh, when it comes to replenishing their war chest. Um, so Elf, I, I saw you tweeted earlier this week that buckle up, we will see a lot of bad takes on dollar liquidity now that the debt ceiling so proper has ended. So let's yes. start with a discussion on the ramifications for dollar liquidity now that the debt ceiling so proper actually has ended. Okay, let's do the mechanics first. Yeah. Um, so now that the debt ceiling soap opera is over, but be prepared in two years, we're going to have exactly the same <laughs> crap all over again. But now that it's over and that magically the US hasn't defaulted, all of a sudden they can issue bonds again or T-bills. So that's an important distinction we need to do. But they do that because effectively they need to replenish their treasury general account. So contrary to normal bond issuance, which in the US happens mostly to fund deficit spending, this bond issuance only partially funds the ongoing deficit spending, but mostly it is there in the first instance to replenish the Treasury General account. So that's the first difference. Not all the money that is issued by the government gets spent in the real economy. So that's already a drag and a difference to usual bond issuance. Okay, so the numbers. We have about a trillion, those are the estimates, of issuance that needs to be there between now and the next three to four months. About 30% of it is to fund ongoing deficit spending between now and then, and the rest is to replenish the Treasury General account to what the government has said. Its target is $600 billion, if I'm not mistaken. So there is a lot to go there. Okay, so uh, a couple of ways this can happen. Historically, every time the government has to replenish the Treasury General account, they do that through T-bills first, not through long-duration bonds. And why do they do T-bills first? Mostly, it's because T-bills are much easier to absorb for the private sector than long-duration bonds are. A couple of reasons. First, they carry effectively no interest rate risk. They're very short-duration instruments, so you don't need a lot of uh, risk-taking to buy T-bills. Second, there is a gigantic demand of T-bills out there from institutional investors that have no access to the Federal Reserve. So those are corporate treasurers, money market funds, pension funds, asset managers. Money market funds are an interesting category in all of this because these guys have over $2 trillion parked at the reserve repo facility at the Federal Reserve. In their mandate, they can buy the T-bills. So what I'm pointing out is everybody will talk about the issuance coming. Can you please have a look at the other side of it, which is the demand, the pent-up demand for these instruments? Mm. Nowadays, T-bills yield about 10 basis points above the corresponding Fed fund deposits or Fed fund swaps. 
or instruments that replicate where or how much money you can make by parking money at the Fed. Today, T-bills are yielding above that. So in my opinion, money market funds will take some of their money out from the reserve repo facility and facilitate this rebuild of the Treasury General account by the government by buying the very T-bills that the government will need to issue. When they do that, they somehow sterilize the so-called liquidity drain because instead of bank reserves going down as a result of all of this, it will rather be at least partially the reserve repo facility going down. Yeah. So the recap of my rant here for three to four minutes is, A, it's not a given that the one trillion of T-bill issuance will drain the same amount of, of reserves from the system because money market funds could use some of their reserve repo balances to buy the, uh, the upcoming T-bills. B, in general, even if, if that's not true, please consider that there is demand together with supply. And there is a bunch of institutional accounts out there that are looking for these T-bills as a safe way to park their dollars because they don't have access to the Fed. And parking their dollars in the banking system has proven to be a bit risky in March this year, right? So T-bills are actually sought after. Um, it's much more balanced than that. And I have many more takes on why it's more balanced than that. But Andreas, I'll shut up for a second and let you add something here. Yeah, so I I took a look at the empirical evidence of the size of this reverse repo facility relative to, um, to issuance. And the evidence that we've been able to gather over the past few years here, uh, where this has been a very present issue, is that once the private sector is asked to absorb new bill issuance, you should expect roughly 60 to 70% of the liquidity effect to be absorbed by a drawdown on the reverse repo facility. So 60 to 70% of it all will be, will be taken out of, of the Fed to uh, cover for the issuance needs, basically. Uh, that is of relevance uh, because it essentially uh, counters much of the liquidity effect. Uh, so this plain vanilla um, Conclusion that now dollar liquidity will dwindle. Yeah, sure, but it's not as bad as it looks, uh, and that's obviously something to um, to take notice of. I personally think that um, we should be on the watch for the uh, weekly flows into money market funds over the next month or two here, um, and the reason is from from a very practical marketing perspective. I think money market funds have a better case telling regular people to to invest in money market funds now that there is a bill issuance to actually invest in. Uh, so from a marketing perspective, they have a much better case, much more compelling case. Uh, and the last few times I've visited the US, um, basically through March and April, uh, even in the taxis, you had like commercials running. Why don't you park your money with the government instead of with, uh, with banks? Uh, and given the whole situation around the debt ceiling, that marketing push was probably a bit more cumbersome. Um, I think I actually think some people feared that this would end up in a default. I never feared it, but some people did. And now that you have this issue out of the way, I think money market funds will be very, very aggressive again. Uh, and given the turbulence in, uh, in the banking system just a few months ago, I think they have a very compelling marketing case. Uh, this week, the um, FDIC uh, so the uh, deposit insurance uh, guarantee organization they they um, 
held their like quarterly webinar on the um, current status of the banking system, and they've increased the amounts, the amount of banks under very tough scrutiny from four to forty-three. <laughs> um, so, I mean, forty-three banks are under close scrutiny from from the FDIC currently. Uh, that was their main message. That is still a lot more than what we've seen uh, through March and April. Uh, so, yes, the liquidity effect is not as bad, but I think money market funds will have a compelling case of attracting flows again from um, from the next week and onwards. Okay, so so far we've talked about effectively the softening, offsetting reasons why uh, a rebuild of Treasury General Account is not as dramatic or simplistically one-on-one related to drop in the equity markets as many want to picture that. Um, there is another softening stance we need to talk about because one of the mechanics by which, in principle, draining reserves from the system and issuing bonds to the private sector to absorb actually is, a, is detrimental to equity markets is the duration effect that this has. Because if the private sector, namely banks or pension funds or asset managers, need to absorb long-duration bonds without the help of new resources upcoming, without new reserves in the system, in other words, they effectively need to make room in the risk-taking. So if you're a primary dealer and you have to absorb a lot of long-duration treasuries that are being issued without having more reserves or more balance sheet or more risk available, you effectively have to make up this risk. You have to make up this room, right? And so the private sector generally wants to have risk-free assets, but if they need to have a lot of them with a lot of duration risk, they will have less appetite to buy risky assets, right? They will focus their risk budget on absorbing the duration risk which is coming. But if you instead issue T-bills, mostly, at least at the beginning, in the first leg, you won't have much of that duration risk to weigh on the private sector. So the levers are really two. One is the amount of reserves in the system, and the second is how much duration the private sector has to absorb, how much interest rate risk the private sector has to absorb yep. overall. And right now, both the duration will be pretty low because the government will issue mostly T-bills. And second, as we explained, there are some offsetting factors on the amount of bank reserves drain, let's say. So those are the softening um, items here. Nevertheless, I think it's still good if we take a step back and talk about what is the general relationship that people like to draw between bank reserves and equity markets. So I know you have a chart, Andreas, why don't we try to pull it up? Yeah, so it's a chart uh, that many of you have probably seen both in bank publications on Twitter and on LinkedIn. It's used by a lot of economists and strategists, uh, and it shows the relationship between the so-called dollar liquidity proxy and the S&P 500. Um, And this liquidity proxy uh, is created by taking the size of the balance sheet and then deducting uh, the effects from the Treasury General account and from the reverse repo facility. Uh, So two major moving parts um, of of the dollar liquidity landscape outside of whether the Fed increases or decreases the balance sheet uh, by, um, by design and the monetary policy. And... If we look two, three months ahead, uh, we know that the Federal Reserve will still allow quantitative tightening to run its course. I don't even see any discussions uh, in any of the speeches from Fed members on whether to 
end that. Uh, they are only discussing the Fed funds rate currently, right? Um, and uh, therefore, we know that roughly 90 to 95 billion will run its course from the quantitative tightening program. That's a dwindling effect on dollar liquidity. We know that the Treasury General account will have to be replenished, but most of that effect will be countered by a drawdown on the reverse repo facility once money market funds pull money out of the Fed and invest in T-bills instead. So the overall picture is still pointing towards less dollar liquidity available to the system. And if you look at the correlation over the past two years, that would suggest that the S&P 500 uh, drops in value from here. Um, if you look at this correlation in a slightly longer <laughs> time frame, especially between, say, 2016 and 2020, you essentially get zero correlation. Um, so it's not a given that this is the only thing that will move markets. Uh, it is it is an addition to um, a it is an input variable, I'd say, to your asset allocation. But it's not the the, the whole truth. Uh, that's what I wanted to say here. So I've done some uh, regression analysis. Very sounds very sophisticated. It's not. Um, so you just regress the changes in bank reserves, so called liquidity against the S&P 500 returns. And you want to lag the S&P 500 returns. Like you want to check whether there's any predictability mm. that the changes in liquidity has on changes in bank reserves. If you do this between 2020 and 2022, you get some decent result for a one variable model. But if you extend the time horizon, I think I went all the way back to 2008 to get you know the, the QE kind of long period, basically. Mm. And uh, you get an R square of, 3%. So, in other words, the changes in bank reserves explain 3% of the, the variability of the S&P 500 returns lagged yeah. by six months. So, that goes to say that there will be periods in which those two items are relatively well correlated, and there will be periods where they are completely not. So, one thing I've noticed uh, in my research, Andreas, on the macro compass is that if you widen your horizons, and instead of only looking at U.S. liquidity, you actually look at global uh, reserves. Uh, we can pull a chart here to have a look at that. If you look at global reserves, and if you look at the changes in global reserves, then you get a little bit of a better picture, especially if you compare rapid changes in global reserves to turning points in equity market returns. That looks like a little bit of a better statistical relationship, mm -hmm. but still, and I want to stress this out, you cannot predict the stock market with a one-variable model. Oh, that's a surprise, isn't it? I mean, otherwise everybody would be rich. I mean, the, the situation is much more nuanced than, than this, but if you do global <laughs> reserves, then you get a little bit of a better idea on turning points. And I think from a global perspective, you now have the US uh, that will lose uh, reserves, Europe will lose reserves, yeah. uh, QT and TLTRO repayments. Japan will not add as many reserves as in the past. Um, China, big question mark. I mean, yeah. their economy has been weakening, so you never know whether these guys do open market operations or whatever they do to try and restore some uh, animal spirits. Overall, global bank reserves shouldn't be going up over the next um, few quarters, let's say. What, we, what I want to try and come across with here is it's much more nuanced than the simplistic takes you take. Yeah. Uh, monitor 
the amount of reserve repo balances, the amount of bank reserves, pressure in the dollar funding markets, global bank reserves, not only the US ones, but also do monitor macro because that will be the defining factor for yep. where, where equity markets go rather than bank reserves, although people like a very simple narrative. So one thing uh, I always end up discussing with myself when I look at global reserves or global liquidity measures is whether you should allow this to be measured with an ongoing spot exchange rate towards the yeah. US dollar or whether you should use some kind of long-term equilibrium level for, say, the euro dollar level or the dollar-yen level. Um, and a lot of the correlation between global liquidity and global risk assets actually stems from the dollar exchange rate rather than the liquidity. You could argue that at least, um, which is interesting because currently, uh, if you look at global liquidity measures, they look outright abysmal because of the very strong resurgence of the dollar over the past month or so, right? Yeah. Uh, so is it because of the dollar or is it because of less available liquidity? I'm, I'm not sure that we can get the full answer to that question, uh, but it's very interesting what we see in dollar, uh, in the dollar landscape right now. And I think it relates to the discussion we'll have now on inflation in Europe versus the US. So I know you've done a study on sort of the driving forces behind the repricing that we've seen in the euro versus the dollar elf. And it relates to, for example, real interest rate differentials between Europe and the US. Yeah. So let's have a chat about the euro and um, the relationship between, you know, inflation that we are seeing uh, in the US and in Europe, how it's affecting bond markets and euro against the dollar. So if you look at euro against the dollar, of course, there are plenty of ways to try and assess where that FX pair will go. But a couple of things to look at that are always useful, I think, are um, interest rate differentials. This is one, and in particular, real yield differentials between Europe and the US. And I have looked at a chart that we can put up on the screen here. Um, no, this chart actually is, oh, well, we can put it up as well uh, later on maybe, but for people who are not watching this chart, basically, this would depict how real yields differential between French government bonds and US government bonds effectively tend to mimic very well where euro against the dollar is going. Mm. The reason why I chose French here uh, is both because they have a five-year inflation-linked link, uh, bond, which is good, and so you can compare that to the US, and second, because France is effectively the barometer for European government bond markets. So you can use French government bonds as a proxy for European uh, bond markets. And, you know, real yields in Europe have basically come down relative to the US pretty aggressively over the last um, few months, that has helped the euro come down from their peak of 110. And there will always be a relationship here because people who invest in FX care about carry. If you're long a currency or short another, you will be receiving the real interest rates from one currency and paying the real interest rates in the currency that you're short. So obviously the differential between what you pay and what you receive in real interest rates will be driving, will be one of the driving forces of euro against the dollar. And the other one uh, that recently I've looked at is the economic surprise index. So mm. obviously, if an economy is doing much better relative to another, and especially relative to the expectations that people have for these two economies, then you'll have more money flowing towards the economy, which is doing better, which has a nominal strong uh, growth impulse, which is strong, and that will help appreciating the currency. 
Right now, Europe has been having some pretty bad uh, economic surprises relative to expectations, and especially relative to the U.S., where instead expectations were pretty low and the U.S. economy has delivered some decent-ish number of late, or at least better than expectations. So if you cross the economic surprise indices between euro and uh, the U.S. against euro-dollar, you also can find some interesting signals there or correlations that might suggest right now that the euro should be way weaker uh, than it is as we speak. Now, that's my uh, small take on euro against the dollar. Yes, um, great takeaways. And uh, I've thankfully been on top of this trend. So I suggested the short euro dollar trade, was it a month ago in this podcast, and um, traded it and finally made a bit of money on my euro skepticism. And Elf, I've noticed a couple of very interesting key figures coming out of Europe this week. Uh, and I'd like to start in inflation space. Uh, the inflation number... Uh, for the Eurozone surprised expectations on the low side. A couple of things to notice in relation to that. It did not surprise the European Central Bank projections on the low side. Uh, so the European Central Bank for once was better than the market at projecting inflation. I think that's the first time in quite a while, uh, even though the market is crap at it as well. But never mind. Um, it's a price on the low side to market expectations. Obviously, a euro negative when that happens. Uh, but the European Central Bank uh, projections were basically spot on, meaning that relative to what they projected back in March, they do these quarterly projections, right? This should not be something that should alter the picture from um, a European Central Bank perspective. So I still think the base case is that they will hike a couple of times um, this uh, summer, despite this surprise on the downside. But beneath the hood, beneath the surface, we also received the monthly um survey from the European Commission on price expectations for selling prices among European companies. Uh, and I think it's fair to say now we have the chart uh, to bring up on the screens yeah. here that expectations among companies are now falling off a cliff, basically. They don't expect to be able to hike prices now. Uh, and that's a game changer to, to, to me. Uh, so the net net in this survey is now only at 7%. So there is a slight majority suggesting that they could increase prices a little over the coming quarters, uh, but that is down from roughly 70% last year. So essentially what companies are telling you now is that they don't expect to, to hike prices. Uh, and that, that would typically lead price inflation to, say, 2% or maybe even slightly below. Yes. I mean, the European inflation story has always been more supply and yeah. energy crunch driven than the US. Uh, it doesn't mean that there is no demand driven inflation in Europe, but it has always been less so than in the US. If you start from this and you have a look at what the supply side is doing and selling price expectations is one of it, but there is the New York Global Supply Chain Index, for example. If you want to have a look at where uh, delivery times are, or anything that has to do with the goods industry, the manufacturing industry, um, inflation expectations, or any supply side, starting even from the basics, like commodity prices. And you'll see that it's all pointing down. So if you think that European inflation was more driven by the supply factors, those supply factors are coming down and easing really, really aggressively over the next few months. 
when it comes to how you trade it, then uh, that's interesting because the bond market in Europe has been listening a bit to this. Um, so you had bonds rallying some, I think, 20 basis points in a week, which is a, a meaningful move. It's about mm. two standard deviations in a week. It's pretty good, pretty solid. But um, if I look at where the ECB is priced, um, then I think you are right on the fact that they will mechanically hike one or two more times to get to a terminal rate of 375. I think that's acceptable for them as a, a lending point for how tight the ECB rate becomes in the end. The market is pricing exactly that. Yeah. So you don't get any benefit from, uh, from that lag. It's all about what happens after that. Because if you have the confluence of inflation rapidly falling down, and you know there might be the dovish chorus in the ECB early in 2024, asking the committee, why do we have rates at 375% if inflation has collapsed all the way down already to three, or even some of the service point to 2% inflation yeah. by early next year. So there are 75 basis point cuts being priced in 2024. Some cuts are priced already in. They are already baked in bond prices, in other words. Um, but, you know, cutting from 375 to three, um, it's something. But if inflation is back at two, then a 3% ECB rate is still relatively tight, historically speaking. I mean, don't forget that ECB kept rates at negative levels for years. So a 3% ECB rate is, from a long-term perspective, still very tight. So the way I look at this is, I think European bonds are, um, they might offer some value, especially if you get some repricing of yields back up. Then I think at this point in the cycle, you are looking at a positive expected value trade if you yeah. buy some fixed income in Europe. Yeah, uh, I tend to agree. I've added a position in the Widowmaker ETF TLT this uh, week. And so far, so good. I've actually made some money on it. And um, to me, <laughs> I, I, I'm a plain simple guy sometimes. And I I like to enter a long duration bet very close to the actual pause slash pivot from a central bank. And I still, I still get the sense that we're slightly closer to that point with the Fed than the ECB. So I'm keeping my powder dry in that euro bond trade. But... I, I agree with you. The risk reward is improving um, from a structural perspective here, uh, but I um, I keep my powder dry in, in euro markets and um, add some powder to the dollar markets, so to speak. Elf question mark um, because I mean when you look at inflation surveys falling off a cliff as they do in Europe now, uh, when you look at uh, delivery times coming down, when you look at global supply chains easing rapidly, et cetera, um, it sounds like it's, it's the supply side doing better. But could it be that it's actually driven by a demand side doing much worse? Uh, that's at least one of the questions I've been asking myself this week. Uh, and the reason is that we received um, one of the worst prints I've ever seen out of Sweden, uh, so my my neighboring country, um, from the manufacturing sector, uh, the weekly, uh, sorry, the monthly PMI out of Sweden printed at forty um, in the manufacturing sector, and the new orders index printed at thirty three. I mean, it, it so it, I mean we're we're talking like two thousand and eight level style um, PMIs, right? And so far, the production actually does okay um, in Sweden, but typically there is, you know, a time lag of say two, three, four months between the survey and actual production. And 
typically when Sweden does this bad, um, it is kind of a sign that the global demand cycle is not doing well. Uh, you could you could consider Sweden the South Korea of the Western economy to a certain yeah. extent, uh, due to its very very industrial based, export oriented economy, very open economy. Uh, the domestic demand as a percent of GDP is not relatively high, and and stuff like that. Uh, so I think this is a warning signal, and. Um, we haven't seen similar trends, uh, at least not to the same extent, in, in other manufacturing surveys across Europe and the US. But the direction of travel is the same. So Yeah, I mean, the manufacturing cycle is dead, basically. Mm. I mean, to be honest, wherever you look at, be it South Korea, uh, very relevant for the global manufacturing cycle because of their open nature, um, their tech manufacturing exports. If you look at manufacturing, even in China, that is trying to engineer recovery. It's not working that well. You look at manufacturing now, even in the US, right? I mean, new orders in the manufacturing sector have been consistently bad for now six to nine months, even in the regional Fed service, um, you know, Dallas Fed, Richmond Fed, all the manufacturing service are looking pretty poor. Mm. Europe, not doing great either on the manufacturing side. You're pointing to Sweden, but in general, also European manufacturing has been weak. The problem is it's all about the goods industry. I mean, yeah. the manufacturing cycle is looking pretty bad and has been looking pretty bad for now a while. Mm. So the usual relationship in the past would be that the manufacturing cycle would also lead weakness or strength in the services sector. That has been the usual pre-pandemic trend. So we used to watch manufacturing PMIs very closely. South Korean exports, Sweden manufacturing PMIs to get an indication. Well, if you did the same, you were very early in calling for yes. weakness in services that hasn't shown up, weakness in consumers that has been there. So the trend is for a weaker growth impulse overall, but the services and the consumer sectors are not nearly falling as much as the manufacturing sector. That is really the dilemma out here. And it could be that the lags are much longer. It could be that the goods industry had a boom where we were at home ordering four laptops because we had nothing to do during the pandemic. And now you're paying the price for that, basically. And you are, you know, building inventory and you are, you know, basically slowing down. And then this lag will take a while to play out yep. in the services sector because one of the theories there, which is also about structural inflation, and I, I want to talk to you about that, is the amount of real economy money printing we have done during the pandemic was so, so, so large <laughs> that even if the rate of change is negative and you have all these credit impulses being negative and all this you know, change of money to the private sector being negative, the amount, the magnitude of the printing was so large that it's going to take much longer than usual to cool everything down. Yeah. That's one of the takes I'm hearing. So I'm going to ask you, what do you think about that? I think it's, it's got some merit to it, that argument. Uh, we could also see uh, various assessments of excess savings still being elevated, uh, but slowly but surely veining. Um, the San Francisco Fed had a very interesting paper uh, out on U.S. excess savings. And if you follow that methodology, the, the excess savings will at least last until the end of Q3, maybe even into Q4, uh, because of the sort of pent-up savings that were created through 2020 and 2021. Uh, so I think clearly that's uh, been a, a fair um, point through this cycle. Another thing that I'd like to add to this discussion is the fact that over the course of 21 and 22, 
we had a substantial drop in real wages. The question is whether that is good or bad news for companies, first of all, um, because, I mean, if I were, I am a business owner, if I am able to increase my selling prices without paying more in wages, I ultimately end up demanding more labor um, since the relative price of labor drops. And it's the first time in several decades that we've had such a landslide in real wages. And I think you could actually argue that it is the reason why we see such bizarre labor demand um, because the relative price of labor dropped, say, 10% over the course of a couple of years. Uh, And therefore, the interesting schism now is, let's assume that I'm right, that headline inflation in Europe will drop from uh, the double-digit territory last year into 2% very rapidly. Wages will not follow south that fast, um, meaning that we will actually have real wage income growth in Europe, maybe to the extent of, say, two, two or three percentage points in the second half of the year. Would that be the exact trigger for companies laying off people? I tend to think that it could be that trigger uh, because the relative price of labor increases fast. Uh, and and therefore, we have this kind of upside down scenario where a drop in, in real wages actually leads to a very hot labor market and vice versa when the opposite happens. And ultimately, what I'm trying to say here is that you can you can basically live with a drop in real wages of 5 to 10% for a couple of years. It is much better than being laid off from a consumption perspective, right? Yes. Uh, so, so, yes. so, I mean, ultimately, the layoff cycle is much more important than the real wage cycle for consumption. And this is another result of the schizophrenic cycles that we have had uh, after the pandemic, where normally you have real wage growth moving together with productivity in an equilibrium model. And here instead, it's not moving because of that. It's moving because of corporate margins that have been incredibly high due to what uh, some have dubbed as greedflation by corporates, <laughs> uh, you know, trying basically to ride the inflation wave and hike prices even more than necessary to, to actually uh, get more margins rather than anything else. So, you know, those are the big macro questions, I think, that are still left open to answer in the post-pandemic world, whether the lags between the manufacturing and the services is taking longer, or there is no lag at all because for some reason the consumer sector can manage 5% Fed funds, 4% ECB rate in Europe, um, 7% mortgage rates. Maybe something structurally has changed or maybe the functioning of the typical cycles and lags that we're used to are just not there or they're very different than what we're used to because the intervention during the pandemic have been so large that actually they have distorted some of the usual lags and signals. I tend to be in this camp rather than in the something magic has happened to economies and therefore uh, the global economy with $305 trillion can all of us in debt can all of a sudden manage 5% risk-free rates that easily. With manage, I mean, there's not going to be a rapid slowdown in economic activity in the services sector. Because right now, if you look at where U.S., services growth is, it is roughly in the 1-125% annualized real growth area. If you blend a bunch of indicators, 1% real growth is not a recession. It's a soft patch in growth. Mm. It's a below structural 
uh, trend growth, but it's not nearly consistent with the recession yet. So there has been a slowdown, but now we are at the point where people are asking themselves, oh, so maybe that's it. It's a mild recession. It's a recession that is definitely there in the manufacturing sector, definitely there in the real estate sector, where you can see house prices coming down. The mm. median house price is down 10, 15% from the top. So yeah, maybe it's a mild recession where the most frothy, hyped sectors have suffered the most, tech, real estate, et cetera. The manufacturing cycle is really bad, but the consumer and services are holding up. So what you get is somehow a very fragmented, weak economy, and that's it. That's one yeah. of the narratives which is developing. You know, that's it. We are in the midst of it, and that's how bad is it going to get. To marry that thesis, it means something really material has changed in how the global economy works. And I'm not sure that I, I marry that thesis, Andreas. No. Um, I, guess, I guess the jury is still out. Uh, and the second half of this year will be as interesting as ever. Uh, but if you ask me, if inflation comes down to 2%, 3%, that range by November, December this year, it is basically the worst possible scenario for a lot of sectors since they will be faced with wage growth of four, five, six percent in the meanwhile. Corporate profits and margins will suffer in such a scenario. All right. Do we have anything um, tactical to put up there this week in terms of trade ideas? Nothing is also an answer. <laughs> well, I've added TLT. Um, yeah. So um, long duration in dollars. Um, the reason is that, first of all, it looks technically compelling. Secondly, I think you're spot on, Elf, that the issuance will be mainly centered in the front end of the curve, uh, in contrast to the expectations from many. Um, so that should alleviate some of the pressures in the, in the long end of the dollar curve. And then I am slowly but surely convincing myself that the soft evidence that we get of inflation during the second half of the year now screams that we will get back to target closer um, than, than many people think. So uh, tactically speaking, I like to add um, to to the position in, in duration in dollars. Uh, and the question is also whether once the Fed skips June, which is basically the signal that we've received from many of the members this week, uh, in sharp contrast to the week before that, it will be very difficult to reignite the hiking cycle. It basically almost never happens. Um, but let's see. So the... One of the trade ideas I like out there uh, is, as I did already, I think it's still there as a good risk-reward opportunity, is to, to listen to the Fed. Yeah. Listen to the Fed. It's been, it's been making consistently money if you listen to the Fed. And in this case, listen to the Fed means they told you that they would take a pause. The Chair Powell said that they will take time to assess the tightening they have done so far, the potential credit crunch, Time doesn't mean six weeks. Time doesn't mean even 12 weeks. Time in the central bank jargon generally means at least a couple of meetings, maybe even three meetings to see how, where this is going. And if Bullard, which is a non-voter, is screaming that the Fed should like three more times, it's Bullard. So listen to the core of the Fed. Listen to, the, to Williams. Listen to Powell. Listen to these guys. They're going to pause. And I also think they're going to pause in June and in July and possibly even in September. And there was a point where if you looked at what the market was pricing in, you have a 70% hike probability in June. Yep. You need to fade this stuff, guys. I mean, listen to the Fed. 
And actually, uh, one last thing I'm going to say is that so far, Andreas, the Fed has done a pretty decent job. I mean, we like to dunk on the Fed in general because the Fed can't reply anyway. So it's, it's good if you can attack somebody who can't reply back. But <laughs> look, these guys have made a mistake in 2021 and they have not tightened earlier. To be very honest, the excess demand was mostly generated by 5 trillion of fiscal deficits that the Biden administration threw to the economy. And Powell can't do much about that fiscal side of things, right? They were late in reacting, and that's a mistake. After that, they've convincingly hiked. They've been very clear, relatively clear in communication that they would hike, hike, and hike further. And now they're at five, and they're going to be saying, you know, we pause, we, we wait, and we see what the effects are. So far, so good. The economy has slowed down. Inflationary pressures in the US are coming down. It even remotely might look like a soft landing as we speak. I don't think it's going to end up as a soft landing. But so far, the Fed has been relatively consistent in their communication. And I don't see why you should fight them. So I like fading any time the market price is in that the Fed is not going to do what the Fed mm. just said they're going to do. And this time they said they're going to pause. Yeah, I agree with you, Elf. And one thing I've noticed over the past two weeks, um, and now I'm particularly talking about Northern Europe, and I get the sense that it's the, kind of the same vibes that uh, other countries are sending. Um, the Economic Council of Denmark um, used the phrase that Denmark is now prone for a perfect landing, not a soft landing, a perfect, perfect landing. Right. So slowly but surely the consensus is building around this soft landing or even a perfect landing. Uh, and we've seen that before. And uh, I mean, one of the issues with a very, very negative economic consensus is that if everyone already accepts the notion that we're um, facing tougher times ahead, then it's very, very hard to get that external shock to the economy because everyone's very conservative. You don't take too many risks, etc. So if we get a consensus now that maybe we could take a bit of risks again, we don't need to be as conservative. I actually think that it ultimately increases the possibility of a recession. I agree. So uh, I've, we have two things to say uh, before we leave. The first is, if you're listening on a podcast, you're the best. If you're watching us on YouTube, do subscribe to the channel so you don't miss any new video coming out on a Sunday. Yep. Do subscribe. Come on, get in. The second thing is, uh, you hear us blabbering for 42 minutes here, which means you probably like uh, <laughs> hearing our views, I'm going to say. So if you like Andreas' views, where can they find much more of that, Andreas? At stenoresearch.com, and we will add the link in the uh, show notes below on YouTube and uh, in Spotify and Apple, etc. Uh, one thing I can mention is that we've launched our complete live portfolio, so you get live trade signals, etc. Um, something to uh, take a look at. We have a 14-day free trial, so um, it's, it's basically a free attempt for you. So if uh, you want to check out what I do, I write two or three times a week timely articles on whatever is going on in macro, asset allocation, macro strategy, trades, anything like that. It's on themacrocompass.com. You can also send me an email at info at themacrocompass.com if you have questions about the product. So as well, the links will be under the description if you want to visit our website and check what we do. Said that, 
I think it's uh, time to say goodbye and to talk to you guys again next Sunday. Ciao.